1: this is Cami. Our Money Tales guest today is Rebecca Masiera kaufman Rebecca has been leading a fast-paced, globetrotting life as a CEO of multinational businesses. She's publishing her first book titled The Fit CEO in September 2021. The book covers how to be the leader of your life physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. Like most things in life, you can apply these principles to your personal financial health, which Rebecca talks with us about today.
2: Hi, this is Sandy. Rebecca is a corporate powerhouse, loving wife, and devoted mother. She draws on her deep expertise in the financial services industry and has a demonstrated track record of leading highly successful business turnarounds, scaling new businesses, and expanding operations globally. Rebecca also brings a strong background in governance through her corporate and nonprofit board experiences. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Rebecca Massiera kaufman
1: Rebecca Massiera it is wonderful to have you today with us on Money Tales. Great.
3: Thank you for having me. Fun to be here.
1: Rebecca, would you start us off by giving us a, an overview of your life and focus on A couple pivotal moments that really make you who you are.
3: I grew up in San Francisco. I grew up with two parents who were both medical doctors, psychiatrists, and two siblings. And I was always interested in business. Had a little shop when I was young, Rebecca's little shop. And from an early age, I loved business. Uh, And from an early age, I loved everything international. Ended up going to business school after my undergrad years. And during my undergrad years, I worked abroad every summer because I was super interested in everything international and I loved languages. I studied a lot of languages and then I wanted to live in as many countries as possible. So let's see, in college, I lived in France and Finland and in business school, I lived in Hong Kong. And after business school, I moved to London for three years. So lots of international background.
1: Oh, this is great. Thank you. That was a good summary. And I want to take us back to when you were young. Tell us about how does this little shop, little businesswoman get started? Were you and your folks having conversations about money and business? Uh, really, where did, where did you get this entrepreneurial drive at such a young age?
3: Well, I definitely wasn't talking about business with my two doctor parents. (laughs) I think we decided it must skip a generation in the family because my grandfather on one side had a shoe business and my grandmother was like a shoe designer. And then my grandparents on the other side, my grandmother was a teacher and my grandfather was in many different businesses. He was a a stockbroker in 1929. Starting off as a stockbroker. And so he ended up as a laying bricks, making candy, selling for, you know, getting all kinds of jobs throughout his life. And then, but interestingly, both my grandmothers worked and my mother. You grew up in a
2: household or in a family where where everybody was working. What were you observing about money
3: and as
2: you were growing up?
3: We didn't really talk about money per se. When I was four years old, my father got really ill. And I don't remember my mom's amount of work. My mom told me she worked part-time, but when my father was ill, she went full-time because he couldn't work full-time. So he was in private practice, so you don't earn money if you don't practice. And so I I think what I observed was more my mother working full-time, taking care of my dad, and I could see changes happening. Like my mom put together sort of a responsibility wheel in the house. and so. We all had to do things, so clean the bathrooms, grocery shop, because now I can see she was saving money by getting rid of a housekeeper, but we all took on the jobs, and we all got paid. We got paid to take the garbage out. We got paid to clean the bathrooms. We got paid to do grocery shopping, and I was always interested in money, so I signed up for the higher-paying jobs, like cleaning the bathrooms. (laughs) (laughs) Those were the highest-paying jobs. So we all did things in the house. So we all worked. I helped out my mom, given my dad was pretty much in and out of hospitals most of my life.
1: Sorry to hear that. As this person who was willing to do the dirty work, are you, were you a spender or a saver?
3: Both. I spent money to make money. So I think my mother didn't like shopping. And my weekends, most, well, I don't, again, this is my memory. So your memory isn't always accurate. I have many recollections of taking the Greyhound bus or the Golden Gate Transit bus to stay with my aunts and uncles for the weekends and stay with my grandparents for the weekend. And I'm a wild extrovert. And so I would like buy packs of gum and sell the pieces on the bus, walk up and down the aisle. I would sell candles. I would sell jewelry that I made. And so everyone on the bus would know me. I'd get to my grandparents' aunts and uncles' houses, sell stuff. That was just I don't know. I loved it. I loved making money, but I think I loved creating things. I made potholders. I made candles. I made jewelry. And I think I had a jewelry business too. I sold jewelry to stores on Chestnut Street and Union Street in high school. And that was just a really expensive hobby. So I had to sell it because you can't just sit around making jewelry. What am I, how am I going to wear all this? So I sold it to stores and they were semi-precious stones amethyst and onyx and things like that. So I was always, always interested in business. And then these stores would all want to hire me when I went in them to sell jewelry. So one of the fashion stores asked me if I'd work for them. And I did. I worked for them. I was always working. I mean, I cleaned houses. I babysat at night. One of my big motivations for money is I wanted to travel. And my parents would always say to me, well, you can do anything you want. You pay for it. I remember when I was, was like 11. I knew there was this Israel trip when I'd be 13 and I wanted to go. And they said, well, if you pay for it, you can go. So I saved all my money to spend it on that trip. So I babysat like four nights a week. I worked at the store on the weekends. I sold jewelry to stores. When I went to college, my mom made me promise I wouldn't work outside of college because she saw that everyone was always hiring me. So that store that I worked for, on Chestnut Street, I would always ask them, like, after something went on sale three or four times, what did they do with it? And I said, you know, really, we just have to throw it out. And I said, well, can I take it to the flea market? So then on weekends, I'd start taking their last sale items and selling them at the flea market. I was always wheeling and dealing.
2: That's impressive. Did you work? Did you did you keep your mom's promise
3: when you were in at college? Yeah. Yes. Because I think she was just really worried I wouldn't not that I ever—I mean, I went to great school, so it wasn't like it hurt me. I was just very academic and very sales-oriented, so or business-oriented. She's right; like I would go into a shop on the weekend on I went to Brown in Rhode Island, so on Thayer Street, and I would—they would all want to hire me because I'd chat with them, and it's just interesting. Like my style, I guess, is one that says she's going to sell or market or something.
2: Was it hard to not work? Well, I had
3: jewelry parties in my dorm room.
1: <laughs> <Knock> it in.
3: <laughs> so I sold my jewelry, but it was already made. I wasn't. And then I worked every summer. It was just while I was in the academic mode. She thought maybe I should just. Yeah. So I kept my promise to my mother. Yes.
1: Rebecca, what did it feel like to be able to make the money to pay for your trip to go to Israel at 13 years old?
3: Oh, it was great. And it was a six week trip. I think because I was raised in a certain way, which is you can do things and you're independent and you can make your own money and you can make your own choices. Like I didn't feel, I think that was very empowering. I don't think that's why my mom and dad did that. I think it was more, they were super busy working and taking care of my dad's health. So it's like, okay, fine. You, you, you can do that. You pay for it. I don't think it was conscious. I'd have to ask her if it was conscious money management strategy. I don't think so. The other memory I have of childhood is my mom did not like shopping, so that's why I would go buy things and resell them. I would also, she always said I could do her expense reports to track her mileage and turn it in. I love that. I love numbers. I mean, I love math. Love, love, love math. I started off as a physics major in college and then ended up with a math minor just doing the physics classes. But I love doing her expense reports. And she said, then you can have the money when I get the check it wasn't so, you know, she just didn't want to, she wanted to get her gasoline expenses back, but she didn't, I did the work, so she gave it to me. So I think we all got that. I'm sure all three of us did.
1: What a great lesson.
3: So you're studying
2: at Brown, physics and math. What do you do when you graduate?
3: Well, I switched majors. (laughs) So I ended up in semiotics. The club I joined at Brown, very important on the journey, was called ISEC. L'Association Internationale pour les étudiants dans les sciences économiques et commerciales. So a French club in business. So basically, if I translate that, it's like the International Business Student Club. And how it worked is ISEC, A-I-E-S-E-C, is we would go and sell the concept of a summer intern to a local company in Providence or anywhere in Rhode Island. And let's say we got 10 companies to agree to take an intern from abroad, then we put this all into a big database, then we would get matched to 10 the club members, we could get access to 10 internships abroad. And it's this big matching algorithm. And so I was very involved in that club. And I my first time I was eligible, which was my sophomore summer, so I would have been what, 20. I put in Scandinavia, and I got matched to a non Scandinavian country which is Finland I got two matches one in Oslo and one in Helsinki and Finland's not part of Scandinavia but I had never heard of Helsinki and so I thought well I got to go there so I took the job in Helsinki for the summer and then this and I worked at ITT Puhelenteolisus which is ITNT telecommunications I spoke French fluently at that point and the next summer I could rank for Paris so the next summer and again i'm I'm selling the concept of an intern to local companies right to get enough matches and then I did get matched to a job in Paris the next summer and I worked at Renault mm-hmm. Renault, the car company in product development. so I, I worked abroad every summer that I could
1: through that same program, Rebecca, the one that you yeah you the built? two
3: years I could yeah sophomore summer and junior summer. Mm. And is that when you started to set your sights on business as a career? No, I wanted to have my career in business when I was like 12. I mean, 10, 11. I don't know. I always wanted to go into business. When I got into Stanford as an undergrad, I declined Stanford and I went to Brown and I sent Stanford. I mean, who knows? Like, I'm 18. What was I thinking? I wrote Stanford a letter saying, I'm so sorry I'm not coming, but I'm definitely coming for business school. <laughs> That's the letter I wrote them. <laughs> Did they keep it? I don't think so. That's great. I got. To, I went to business school there, but I wanted to go to Stanford Business School even when
2: I was in high school. It sounds like you could have run it by the time you got to, to business no. school age.
3: With <laughs> all your experience. I mean, I just was always doing stuff.
1: What did you do coming out of college?
3: Oh my! My uh, senior year, I applied to Stanford Business School, and the dean at Brown's. I went to his office, and he said, "You cannot." just apply to one business school and as a senior and you really have to have a backup plan because business schools don't typically accept seniors from college. And I said, Oh, I was I don't know where I got all this self confidence. I oh no they're gonna take me, I'm going there. And he's like, Well let's just have a backup plan. And so I said like what? And he said, Well what else interests you? And I said, Well I'd love to live in Finland again. So he said, Well maybe a Fulbright grant you could Apply for a Fulbright grant in Finland. So I did, and I applied for the Fulbright grant. And then he also made me apply to other business schools. I mean, not made me, suggested strongly. So then I was very fortunate, and I got into Stanford Business School as a senior, and I got the Fulbright grant in Finland. So then I went back to his office, and I said, "Now what do I do? I got both." So he said, "You defer business school, and you go to Finland." So that was great. I went. I, so I did a postgrad research year in Finland at the University of Helsinki, and When I got there, I convinced the minister of education for the Fulbright to allow me to switch over to the Finnish business school. So I I switched while I was there to have my advisor that was at the University of Helsinki. I switched to have my Fulbright advisor be a business school professor at the business school at Helsinki. So even though my research had nothing to do with business, I just loved that guy when I met him. I did a semiotic analysis of the news coverage of Chernobyl which is totally esoteric and what I did while I was there and I was published. But I also worked on these books like Semiotics of Management and things like that with this advisor. So I got published three times while I was there. He would put like edited by Rebecca. Goffman. Awesome. So I got lots of fun exposure. Then you went to business school at Stanford. Yes. And I was the youngest, one of the, young, I think I was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, either one of the youngest or the youngest in my class, which I, could, I had no idea, you know,
2: I have a feeling that didn't phase you at all.
3: Well, it was tough. Of course, now I get it, right? A lot of people had a lot of experience, and it is different to go through those classes. I think academically, it was easier for me, but not probably socially, it was a little different. So I became a tutor for decision sciences. Remember, I love math, so that's a very heavy math class. That was fun. I met a lot of students that way. I love business school.
2: What were you building for after business school, Rebecca?
3: Well, I figured I had to get a business education. I wanted to be a general manager, a president, I don't know, run, run a
1: company. In any industry in particular?
3: Well, I wanted something international. If you had asked me at the time that I was actually building, manufacturing or making something. But that's not so easy to get a job in that out of Stanford Business School. At least for me. When I when I left business school and I went I really wanted to work in London. And so I didn't do the typical on-campus recruiting process. I did what's called an independent job search. So that summer I worked in Hong Kong resorts. I was very interested in the hotel and real estate industry. I was more interested about where I worked probably than the company per se. Getting exposure to what I thought was international business. I now know that all business is local and all local businesses have international sides to them, but you know, whatever you do every day is usually fairly local i have had chances to work in international businesses but even those like i have to do with what's happening in brazil or mexico or locally you're not really spending your time cross-border all the time ironically i did end up in a big cross-border business but i don't think i understood that when i was in business school
2: did you make it to london right after you were done
3: what i did is i first traveled to kenya with some friends. And then I went to London. I wrote uh, 42 companies. I got 42 interviews and I got 42 rejections because all 42 companies said they couldn't get me a work permit because I, I interviewed with like Cadbury Schweppes or, you know, all these different companies in the UK. And they all met me. They all interviewed me. And then one of the guys on the last, inter, like later, I think I spent three weeks with a big Gantt chart running around London on all these interviews. And one of the gentlemen said to me, you know, I have a firm I know that would probably hire you and probably be able to get you a work permit. And I said, what's that? And he said, strategy consulting. And I had avoided strategy consulting because I wanted to go into a company that made things. So, but at this point I thought I better go. So I went on that interview and they made me an offer the same day and they got me a work permit. And so I moved to London like six, I took like four months to get the work permit or five months. And then I moved to London.
1: Were you thinking about money at the time and what paid the most or besides wanting to live in London and have an exciting... Yeah, if
3: I were thinking about money and what paid the most, I would have gotten a job while I was on campus. Because first of all, that meant I wasn't working probably for a long time, right? I don't think I actually started my job until like April the following year. So I graduated in June, right? And I didn't, by by the time I did all those interviews and got the work, the work permit took like November to May, I think. I had the professor, thank goodness for this professor, Jim Collins, he wrote a ton of books like Good to Great and Built to Last. But anyway, at the time, he was my marketing professor. And I had done an independent study with him. So just a one on one on marketing for a city, I did it on marketing San Francisco. So when I was leaving without a job, which is not that common from Stanford Business School. He said, why don't you work for me as a case writer while you're doing this? So he picked a British company and I could go to England and interview everybody online. So I worked for Stanford Business School writing cases while I was getting my job. Thanks to Jim. So your question of, did I think about money? Absolutely. I think I was always working. I mean, I always worked. You see what I mean? Like I worked and saved the money from all those summer jobs and all my businesses. I, at that point, I'd had like five businesses. So yeah, I was always... And But I was a local hire in the UK versus an expat hire. So I think I earned like, you know, a quarter of what my classmates earned in London. And they all felt so sorry for me. You know, they all had... Just this crazy, like their stuff was shipped. They had this expat package, which was just a totally, I was a local hire. So I lived on pittance compared to them. You know, I would bring my lunch to work every day and I didn't eat out. I remember having these very simple dinners because I couldn't really afford a lot on the local pay.
2: So you're budgeting, you're living in a foreign country. How are you thinking about your future at that point, Rebecca? And specifically around money, because it sounds like you're, you're getting
3: by. Yes, I earned. <laughs> uh, here's how little I earned that one of my classmates from business school. I can't believe she actually said this to me, but she did. She said, you know, maybe you should be someone's admin, you'd earn more. And I thought, no, you know, my big strategy consulting job, I just did everything within my means. You know, I got an expensive apartment that I could find in London. So I lived farther away than the center of London, and or I just found a good deal. I don't know which. And I paid myself first, that was a concept I learned. I went to a talk at the Financial Women's Association of San Francisco at the time, where a financial planner gave us this money quiz. I think I was right when I graduated from business school before I went to work in London. And I remember it said, she said like the number one cause of divorce is money. And she just went through all these facts. And then she said, the most important thing is pay yourself first. And I thought, well, that's totally logical. So when I got my paycheck, I paid myself first and I invested in stocks, uh, Vanguard. And I called a friend of mine up that was, well, all these people in school were in investments. And I said, so where should I invest? And this friend said, Vanguard, just put it in like the S&P 500 or something. So I did that, paid myself first every month and put it in that fund. So I would have been 25 and so did that forever. I love that disciplined investing from the start. Yeah. And I had done it. I had bought stocks when I was really young in fifth grade. I bought stocks because we had a, my school had a class on buying stocks in fifth grade. But I already owned stock before that, too. I think my either my father, I, w- I wrote this down. I can't remember who it was. I don't know if it was my grandpa, but there was stock in his shoe company. And I had some like I can't remember if I had like four shares. But my dad made sure that I tracked my dividends from my little shares. And I had a business license at 13 by the state board of equalization in California. And I paid sales tax on my jewelry. I mean, I had a full, so I was always investing and saving always. I don't remember when I wasn't.
2: Tell us what happened after this initial job in London.
3: After the job in London and I changed jobs in London, I switched. So I was at the first firm, maybe two years. And then I switched with a partner to a second firm, but the second firm went bankrupt. So that was pretty scary. I remember I got a phone call from the, so now I must be 27. And I remember I got a phone call from uh, the director of, like one of the members of the board of directors. And that was scary. And he said the companies went bankrupt. I'm like, okay, I really, like, what does that mean? He's like, well, you don't have a job. And I'm like, oh my God, I have a lease, you know, like for 12 months, what do I do? And I'm on a work permit. And I have to, like, I had to leave the country I did, like when you lose your job, you lose your work permit. So you can't stay in the country. You have like 30 days or something to get out. So, you know, when you're talking about what's the worst thing that can happen to you. So you lose your job. You don't get paid. They didn't pay my expenses either because they were going bankrupt. So all this and the way they pay in the UK is they pay you once a month and they pay you in arrears and they pay your expenses in arrears. So I had a credit card for travel. I had no salary. I had no job. And I had a 12 month lease that I had signed. So that was pretty wild. And then, of course, you don't have any, because I wasn't on an expat package. So an expat package would pay for my airfare home and pay to ship my stuff home. So I had none of that. So that's a big money lesson. So I did a lot of research and learned that in the UK, when a company goes bankrupt, you can get your taxes back up to a certain amount of like what I'd already been deducted from my pay. And so that's how I actually paid myself to get home and do all that kind of stuff. So I did a lot of research Figure and I got out of my lease. I mean, it was just a brutal, brutal hard knocks way to learn more about money. But I learned a lot about, there are all kinds of, I mean, I don't know if that board director might've told me some of this, somebody must've helped me, right? But I remember talking to people.
2: Do you remember what it felt like flying home
3: after all that? That's another story. I didn't go home, I went to Paris. <laughs> so of I was course you did. Why not? <laughs> and I decided I wasn't going to look for a job, but I knew at this point, I want, I want not take a few months off. So I took three months off and I went and I lived with my boyfriend at the time who happened to live in Paris. He was looking for a job. He's my husband now, but he was looking for a job in London. So he was planning to move to London to be closer to me because he lived in Paris. And so I figured, well, I'll just go stay with him while I figure this all out since he was in the middle of about to resign from his job, because in France, you have to give three months' notice. And so I was like, don't give notice. I don't have a job. So he stopped his search for a job in London. I went to Paris and thought, do I want to work in Paris again? And my I didn't, because my dad was really ill, and my mom's like, I really think you have to come home. And we made a decision to move to the U.S.
1: And what'd you do? What was your job? <laughs> and...
3: Oh, so I went back to Sanford Business School and said, hey, I want to be a general manager. Remember, I had been in strategy consulting, wanting to be a general manager or, you know, work towards that. And I said, so what should be my next job? And the career counselor said, you need to be a product manager because you'll get a P&L. That's a great way to do it. So I went and looked for product management jobs. And it was kind of a mini recession at the time in the Bay Area. And so... I ended up with two offers, one in Silicon Valley for like a hardware maker. If you, if you can, Verifone, do you remember that? Where you swipe your credit cards? And my other offer was with a business in San Francisco called First Deposit, which later became Providian Financial. Like all my decisions, I made it based on location, which was my father was ill. I'd rather be downtown San Francisco closer to my dad. And so that's how I ended up at First Deposit as a product manager for credit cards.
2: And you and your boyfriend at the time, making some long-term commitments to each other during this time period or? Oh
3: yeah, we had made all those big decisions in Paris. One of the things we decided to do was come back here and try a living here because that's a big move for him. And then to get engaged and get married. So we did all that. That was all talked through before he moved here.
2: And Rebecca, at that time, and even currently in your marriage, were you guys talking about money? and how are those conversations going?
3: I think with me, you're always talking about money. That's just probably how I'm oriented. So I remember thinking, that's why everything was around, like I get a job, then you get a job, so that we can all be earning money to pay for like an apartment and get a car and all the things you need to do to live. So yeah, we absolutely talked through money. I think he would say I probably was always talking about money.
2: <laughs> Rebecca, as you're making more and more progress in your career, presumably you're earning more money how are you thinking about financial goals
3: for yourself my first job i stayed in in san francisco 3 years as a product manager and by the way i think that's a critical for career advice you know getting a pnl is really helpful so like for me the strategy consulting was like getting a phd in business and then then my next job getting a product management job was like p l management was super helpful. I always wanted to buy a house. At least I remember the time thinking, how would one do that in San Francisco? But I talked to people and sort of realized since I'm not in a rush, it's really a buyer's market. If you're not in a rush, you can just wait until the right time. And so when we ended up buying, it happened to be like, a 10-year low in the real estate market because we just waited for that year. There's always a year where prices are down and so prices were down. And then I had been saving and investing for years, every month paying myself first. So that became the down payment. That was very helpful. And then also we happened to pick a house that was on a little bit of a noisier street. Like we had a school next door. Totally depressed the price of the house. But we worked all day. So we weren't there when the kids were in the yard. But I think for some people, that would just be too noisy to have a school right there. So not only was it a low market, but we picked a street that was a very good neighborhood, but it was just noisy. And so somehow that just had a depressed price for the houses on that corner.
2: When it came to buying real estate, did you do a lot of research or did you feel like you, you just knew enough about buying assets from your, your life experience at that point?
3: So I had bought my first piece of real estate when I was 19, in rhode island so i bought where i lived and then when i left and moved and i think my down payment was like fifteen hundred dollars if you can imagine
1: no (laughs) i can't imagine right i
3: know i'm just saying this is like a long time ago and it's in rhode island and again i had always had all these businesses and was making money and saving money and i paid for half a brown out of all my business money and i bought that piece of real estate place i lived and so when i left brown and i went to Finland, I had quite a lesson in long distance landlordship. It just doesn't work. And so I ended up selling it as a loss, but I had no income. So I had nothing to write it off against. So, you know, I had lots of early lessons in real estate. So I would say I've always been interested in real estate. I always wanted to own real estate. And I don't consider a house owning real estate. I just consider that a house. I mean, uh, it's not investment.
1: So what's real estate to you then?
3: When you invest in it and it pays you- Got it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to earn income. If you're living in it, you're not earning income, you're paying it out.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It's more a liability. The house is a liability, right? It's ka you're constantly putting money into it.
2: So you're back in San Francisco, you're married, you're in charge of a P&L, you do that a couple of years.
3: What happens next? And again, it's interesting that I've always liked money and I worked in financial services, right? So I should say I that was something that was a gift from the consulting days is that I got to see the inside of many many industries so I had clients in health care and oil and gas and retail and everything but the banks were super interesting so that's how first deposit was attractive and then anyway that I got recruited out of there by Wells Fargo to join them And I moved into their insurance group, Wells Fargo Insurance Services, which I really liked. That was interesting. And then I moved from there into Wells Fargo's small business area, business lending. And I ended up there. And then I moved to cash management. And then I ended up running all of small business. I I stayed at Wells 13 years. So that was a a very short summary of 13 years. But I was always paying myself first the whole time. That never stopped, right? So I was always investing.
2: It was equity-based compensation coming into the picture.
3: Yes. And so that was probably one of the better pieces of advice I got is I remember anytime I would get kind of antsy and think, what am I going to do next? There was an executive at Wells that would always say to me, oh, stay, stay like 10 years and you're going to have all this built up wealth that you could create through the, that equity that if you leave, it doesn't vest. So there were just some things like that that were very helpful. And then along the way, I'm buying real estate. So I I kept investing in real estate too.
1: Would you say more about that, just you know, for listeners to understand how that equity built up?
3: I'm so blessed and fortunate. I mean, we're in San Francisco, so where prices go down and up and all around, but they go up over time in San Francisco in general. And a lot of markets, they just kind of go sideways. So I built up equity in the house, and then we use that to buy the rental properties. You have choices when we had kids. How do we want to pay for college, or how do we want to pay for that future? And so I looked at you know you can buy bonds, you could buy a, whatever eighteen year bond to match the eighteen years before your kid goes to college. You could do all kinds of things and I mean a real estate has kind of a bond like return, but it has other benefits as well. So I think it's a choice. I, I think for some people it'd be too high risk for them. I as you have already noticed, I'm not particularly low risk. I was fine with that. I think the option between some of the things that financial advisors were saying to me to do for their education would all be good if you're not personally interested in it. I personally was so interested in it that then I wanted to be involved in doing things like buying a piece of real estate that I figured we could borrow against if we didn't want to sell it to pay for college and things like that for our kids.
2: I appreciate you sharing that as you're moving forward in life and creating more wealth for yourself, you're doing a really great job, it sounds like, of diversifying and being in a lot of different investments which is a really good idea.
3: Yeah, well savings kind of decline over time because of inflation so you got to be investing.
2: Rebecca, do you resume international
3: travel in your career? When I was asked to join City, it was as president of California and What's interesting about cities is it's a global company, and so i was I really was attracted to at that point in my life, my kids were older, so then I was open to all the travel to the New York headquarters and to the global aspects of it. So I think really, Wells was great because I was raising two kids, and so young kids kind of I wanted to be home in the evenings, and so I was when I was at Wells. And then once I went to city, then of course, I had much more travel to New York in particular. But then all over because running California, we, I had branches all over California. And the irony is I went from product manufacturing, marketing, operations, finance, running a whole product business at or a segment at Wells. I had never worked a day in my life in retail banking. So then to go come in as the president of 400 retail branches was really different. And I had this goal. I want to go visit all 400 stores. And they looked at me like, Rebecca, that would take years to do that. So I did. I tried really hard. I was in that role about four and a half years. And I made it to maybe 300 of them. I didn't make it to them all. But so I was on the road. I mean, not always in an airplane, but driving.
1: Rebecca, what were financial and business conversations with your friends at that time? Are you, is anybody talking about what they're doing and why they're doing it from a financial standpoint?
3: Okay, so I work in financial services. I love money. I'm fascinated by it. And as you can imagine, I went to business school. So I have a lot of friends that are interested in money, talk about money. Yeah, so I'd say all the time. And I think it's normal for us. I remember once when my son was young, he said, Why do you talk about mortgages all the time? What are mortgages? I don't know if you remember, there was this period of time that everyone was refinancing, you know, and rates were dropping. Like we'd never seen rates as low as they were. And then mortgages, mortgages, mortgages with the whole 2008. The time period. So I'd say, yeah, definitely it's a dinner table topic and therefore with friends for sure. I I'd Probably a lot of my friends would say the ones that aren't in financial services would say I probably have advised them on money over time. People will ask me. But when I, then after that kind of four and a half years of running the retail bank for California, Nevada, that's when City asked if I would be a president and CEO of the Banamax USA, which is a subsidiary bank, which had the links between Mexico and California in particular. So then I did start doing a lot more travel, a lot more in New York, a lot more to Mexico. And then I did that for three years. And when I was leaving there, I became chairman of that board, so stayed very involved. And then I became head of the International Bank. And there we were in a hundred countries, so that was a lot of travel. And that was wealth management. So I went from small business lending, the small business cash management, to you know all things small business, financial services, to retail, to cross-border money movement and lending, and to an international wealth. So the the business I moved to in city that last one, the international bank, we did dollar-based investing for folks who live in different countries who really wanted to invest in the U.S.
2: Was that a dream job for you at the time? Because it sounds like it pulls together a lot of your interests.
3: Yeah, I loved it. It was a great job. Great people. So interesting. It's something you know in the US, but because I'm in California, it's a little bit different. There's a lot of wealth here that's tech companies and real estate. But when you're in the international business, it's all family-run businesses. They're all all wealth comes from family-owned businesses. And so you just meet these families that have run restaurants for years or making irrigation parts for you. They just manufacturing all kinds of things. So that was really fun. It's fun to see all the businesses.
2: And Rebecca, when you're doing all this international travel as head of the International Bank, how are you
3: keeping fit? That is my fun area. I really have tried, and you'll hear about a a book that I just wrote with a co-author, Lillian So, and I just wrote a book called Fit CEO. It's the idea I had in 2013. And I asked Lillian if she would write it with me at the time she was my personal trainer. I'm just very it's it's so the book's called Fit CEO Be the Leader of Your Life and it's really about intentional orchestration of total health. So mental, physical, spiritual, making sure that you show up as a leader with all those aspects and for yourself, for your family. And so the book is thirty chapters and you can read it through a chapter a day and kind of treat it that way. Or you can read the whole thing through in about two and a half hours. Or you can use each chapter kind of as a reference. We have a chapter on travel, we have a chapter on eating out, we have a chapter on crisis management. And so I'll have kind of a section on the leadership lessons. And then we'll add the physical, mental, spiritual components. And then each chapter has a section after the concept of immediate and imperfect action. Just a few bullets of what you can do right now, immediately imperfectly.
1: That's great. That's so exciting.
3: It comes out September 14th. You find it at uh, www.fitceobook.com. Fitceobook.com. And so there you can put your name in to be on the email announcement or just when pre-sales start in August, uh, you can just go there and
1: buy it. Intentional orchestration of total health. I really appreciate how important that is. Why was this so important to you?
3: I get asked all the time by different people to speak, which I do. And people always will ask me questions about how do you stay positive? How do you stay so high energy? You walk in a room and the energy goes up. How do you do that? And I just describe the cultivation of optimism and the cultivation of energy and the way to have energy is first of all, you got to sleep. (laughs) that you have to exercise. I mean, it's not that complicated. Like we all know the answer, but all the answers are in this little book. In other words, there's nothing in this book that you probably don't know, but it's all in one place. My son says it's life hacks. Uh, Some of my folks who have read it before it goes out say it's just like all the tips in one place in each chapter is about two pages. You can just get it, which is okay. So you get on the airplane, what do they say? Put your own oxygen mask on first. So you got to put your own oxygen mask on first, which to me means take care of yourself, sleep, eat right, exercise. So then I give all these different tips. You got to read the book. So what do you do when you're on a 16 hour flight or what do you do when you're in three cities in one week? How do you eating all your meals in restaurants and different hotels stay mentally, physically fit? So read the book and you'll get all my secrets and Lillian.
1: I can't wait to read the book. I want to know, what do you do on a 16-hour flight? (laughs) I've got visions of you, Rebecca. walking the aisle. I do.
3: I walk the hall. Yes, I walk the aisles. (laughs) But I'm not selling gum. Rebecca, did
2: you say that you have imperfect tips in there? Tips for imperfect
3: action? Immediate and imperfect action. So say more about that. Well, I think Lillian and I both have seen that. People tend to block themselves from taking action because they try to be perfect at it. So forget that. You won't, right? You can't, you can't say, oh, I gotta go to the gym and have the perfect outfit and the perfect shoes and the perfect gym membership and get the perfect class. Forget it, just go for a walk. 10 minutes. Move. You know, so it's just a very straightforward tips to start the path. And if you're further along a path, we have all those tips too.
2: Sounds fantastic. Congratulations on the on the book, Rebecca.
1: Really powerful advice. Thank
2: you. If you were to have a chapter on staying personally financially fit, you've already mentioned the lesson of paying yourself first, and you just mentioned a couple of other ideas. What else would you put on the list?
3: Boy, I have a lot on my list. You definitely want to spend within your means. So if you think about calories, you kind of want to eat within what you can burn. It's the same thing, right? I find it very It's all parallel. It's really all of life is very parallel. So you only want to spend within your means. And I think that's really important. And you want to save aggressively or invest and spend a little more wisely. So you were asking me why the book, I think so many times in my career, people asked me, how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it? And I thought, so I would just sort of write things down and I'm going to write a book. And as you knew, I had already been published. So I knew it was doable From my Fulbright year where I got published.
1: How long did it take? To write this book?
3: I wrote the whole outline for it in 2013. And sort of, I like wrote down things over the years. And when I asked Lillian, we had an outline then. And then I said, Look, I'll give you a buzz when I'm no longer in corporate America because I was working all the time. And so I, I would check in with her, like, You still in? Yeah. I'd give her these random calls. And then when I decided to, move out of corporate America and into this next phase of life of running my own business and going on boards and advising CEOs I I got to write the book now and I called Lily up and I said you ready and she said let's do it so there you go we do exactly what we tell people to do in the book we we scheduled it we met every week and we wrote it and so we we probably wrote it in four months
1: Congratulations.
3: I mean, but we had been working on it, right, over all that time.
1: You built a foundation and then you, you built up from there.
3: Yeah. We are coming to the close of our
2: conversation and we would love to know, Rebecca, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with?
3: Well, my son and I talk about money all the time. He also works in investing, so probably with him at dinner. He's often wants to talk about Bitcoin, so he loves that. And so that's probably the next money conversation.
2: Sounds like an exciting one. Thank you so much, Rebecca Massiara kaufman for this great conversation. It's been a pleasure to hear about your life and your successes and your focus and your exciting new book. Have a lot of fun as you tell the world more and more about it. And thank you for talking with us on Money Tales. Great. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: I can't wait to read Fit CEO. Thanks, Rebecca. Sandy, that was a great conversation we just had with Rebecca Masiera Kaufman. What are some takeaways that you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Cammy? I was so impressed by how driven Rebecca has been throughout her whole life. She certainly comes across as someone who's always been very independent. And I appreciated what she had to say about money being equal to your self-value. Plus independence. And I thought that was great. Uh, Everything from when she was just getting started with applying for colleges and rejecting Stanford the first time around, promising to go to graduate school there, to uh, her different adventures traveling and living and working abroad. I thought she was just a great inspiration for women and men who want to accomplish a lot in their lives and have really exciting career experiences.
1: Sandy I smiled when she talked about Rebecca's little shop and I just had this vision of her with her jewels and all the different things she did as a young entrepreneur and businesswoman and what that theme just kept coming up that it just it was so innate in who she is. It's fun to see how that transitioned to then being a business leader of international financial businesses. Yeah,
2: she's very consistent <laughs> and it is exciting to hear about. Kami, what, what was the takeaway that you wanna share?
1: I appreciated her talking about paying herself first. And we've heard this from some of our other guests, but it's, it's such an important message. Rebecca wanted to make sure she was taking care of her own savings and not just spending and consuming the money. And I think that was a really important message that I got from her, that you got to pay yourself first and how important that is. And I think that she brought that to her jobs. And I, I can imagine that meant that she was an advocate for herself. And as for raises, I'm extrapolating, but I that to me is when I, when I heard her talk about that, I can envision how that was such an important message in her life.
2: I want to talk about real estate for a moment. This is something that Rebecca talked to us about. And I thought it was interesting that she didn't consider her home to be an asset, but saw it more as a liability. And that was interesting for me because when we work with clients and we talk about buying homes, clients often think about the purchase as an investment decision. I agree with Rebecca that a home isn't purely an investment. It is a personal decision that you're making related to where you want to live, how much space you want to have, whether you're living in a city or a more suburban area or someplace entirely different. Most people make housing decisions based on factors that are very different than which home is going to appreciate and value the most over the time period in which I expect to own the home. And I thought that was great that Rebecca brought that up.
1: Yeah. Very helpful information. And then I can't end without talking about being an an author. And she co-wrote a book called Fit CEO. I really like the premise. She used the words intentional orchestration of total health. I think a lot about this. I think about total health and what that means. And it, it does apply beyond you doing 100 sit-ups. You know, it's, it's, it, And I think about then what you layered in about financial health. I'm really excited to read her book. I think it could be really an inspiration for all of us. I like that it's not about perfection. It's just about doing doing something to improve. And I think about that for our financial fitness, it doesn't have to be perfection, just do something to benefit your financial goals.
2: Such a good point. Move in the direction, Move get off the, the couch, <laughs> exercise one personal finance muscle, you'll start building over time.
1: <laughs> great lesson there.
2: I can't wait to read Rebecca's book either. I, it sounds like a great handbook to life. And we wish Rebecca a lot of success with the book. And we thank her for being our guest this week on Money Tales.
1: And that's right. And for our listeners, once again, we welcome you to subscribe to the podcast and share your feedback on the platform that you listen on, as well as you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at And thanks for joining us.
0: You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirantcom slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales.